Thank you for your word. We get to open it and, and be fed. We get to receive from you again this morning. Bless Larry. Anoint his lips as he shares from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. It's a privilege to be here with you all this morning. Uh, there's some familiar faces. Of course, Matt is a familiar face. And I don't know if you know what it's like to watch people grow up and get in the youth group. And sometimes you wonder, will they ever be mature? Will they ever really grow up? Matt was at that spot at one point. But he's grown up, hasn't he? It's kind of amazing when you think about it. But you know, we were all there. I was there as a young man, Matt, so you're not the only one. It's a blessing to be here. We know some of you uh, recognize a lot of faces, uh, missing a lot of names, though, so you might have to help me out if we chat a bit afterwards. But it's, it's good to be here and be with you all at Peckway. I don't think I was ever here on a Sunday morning. I think that's probably true. I don't know if that's true for sure, but I don't think that I have been, and so it's, it's neat to be here. The message for today is from the assigned topic that I was given to preach at home and here and also at Weavertown, and that is, uh, where is my passion? Where is my passion? I don't know if you caught it in Benji's devotional, but those basketball players had a passion. And as you heard that story, what was Scottie Pippen's passion in that particular story? He had a passion for basketball. He had a passion for winning. But in that particular story, what was his passion? Sometimes he had a passion for team throughout his career. I would imagine if they won, I can't imagine how you would win without a passion for team. But at that point in time, his passion was not his team. I don't think it was even basketball. His passion was himself. So I want us to think about that this morning as we think about what is my passion. We could ask some additional questions like, what am I passionate about? What should I be passionate about and why? And how should it affect my life? As people made in God's image, we find it natural for ourselves to find something to be passionate about. We find it natural to seek something to throw our lives into and to throw our energy into, and that's that's, that's natural. That's something that God gave to us. Can you imagine a life without passion? Life without energy? A life without something to look forward to? Can you imagine that? That's not the way that God made us. God made us with energy and with zeal and with passion. And so we often, typically, as people, we find a cause, an organization, a hobby, a job, maybe even a relationship that we can throw ourselves into and put our lives into. And I believe that we also all understand that passion, our passions can be severely misguided. And they can even take us places where we don't want to go. We don't intend to be. Our energy and our passions and our desires, we could all wrap up into one thing. And I believe we generally know what those things are that are sinful or that take our eyes off of Christ. You know, things like drugs, smoking, sexual addictions, Accumulating excessive wealth, abusive relationships all come from passions that are sinful. 
But in addition to that, there's passions like hobbies, jobs, relationships, entertainment that may distract us from Christ and from serving Christ. But I'm not planning to talk this morning about, you know, where is that line between, you know, when you're, when you're entertaining yourself, where's that line between what's good and what's not good, what's okay and what's not okay? I'm not planning to talk about that this morning. And I'm not even necessarily planning to talk about those things, like our job, for example, that could be good, but if we put ourselves into it too much, spend too much time with it, it could be negative, and, you know, where's, where's that line? I'm not planning to talk about those things. And I don't need to explain to you or ask you this morning to work harder or faster or smarter. I mean, after all, we are in Lancaster County. I don't need to tell you to do that, to be more passionate, I would imagine. Rather, what we're going to do this morning is look at three examples in Scripture of men whose passions were misguided, maybe just a little bit, or maybe altogether misguided, and then an example which Matt read in Hebrews chapter 11 about Moses, an example of a man whose passions were properly focused. And we're going to see what lessons we can find for us today. <clears throat> One thing I want you to be thinking about throughout the message today is this. Greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. Greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. First character in the Bible I'd like to look at is Solomon. Turn with me to First Chronicles, and we're going we're gonna to take a quick uh, look through uh, the end of First Chronicles, the beginning of Second Chronicles, and then we'll look some into Kings as well as we look at the early part of Solomon's reign. So at the end of First Chronicles chapter 29, I'm going to ask you to do some scanning down through here, refresh your memory of what this is all about. <clears throat> at the end of that chapter, Solomon is confirmed as king. All the leaders of Israel are submitted to him, and it says in verse 25 of First Chronicles chapter 9 that the Lord magnified Solomon exceedingly <clears throat> in the sight of all Israel and bestowed upon him such royal majesty as had not been on any king before him in Israel. Can you imagine the Lord exceedingly magnifying someone? What that would look like? Solomon was exceedingly magnified <clears throat> before the people. Beginning of Second Chronicles, we see that Solomon responds by offering God a thousand burnt offerings and God appears to Solomon at night. And we know how that story went. We're familiar with that story. It's a good story. It's something we can learn a lot from about how God came to Solomon and said, what's that one thing that you want? Now, children, children, let's say under 12, what would you ask for if mommy and daddy came to you and said, what's one thing that you want? Anything you ask for, I'm going to give it to you. What's one thing that you want? What comes to mind? Any brave souls should have, give, should have given you a warning. Maybe it's a bike or a toy of some kind. Maybe it's money or clothes. Maybe it's a trampoline. I wonder how many of you children, if your mom and dad would ask you for that, would say, I want wisdom. And I wonder, adults, if we're really honest with ourselves, and God came to us, how many of us would say, 
What I really need is wisdom. What I really want is wisdom. And that perhaps shows a little bit of our hearts. But Solomon asked for wisdom. Solomon's heart was right, I believe. Solomon's heart was in the right place. He understood, God, I can't, I can't possibly lead these people well. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't have the experience. I need the wisdom that only time with God and experience can bring. And Solomon recognized that. And God commended Solomon for his choice and his request, and he said, I will give you that and many other things as well. And then in 2 Chronicles, you can scan through the, the chapters of chapters 2 through 5, and you can see one turn after the other where Solomon builds the temple, brings the Ark of the Covenant into it, and then in chapter 6, Solomon's beautiful prayer of dedication at the temple. And then in 7, fire comes down from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord fills the house. And all the people see this and bow down and worship Almighty God. Then at the end of 7, God appears again to Solomon and acknowledges his prayer and agrees to do what Solomon asks. And then in chapter 7, verse 14 of Second Chronicles, we have that beautiful verse that we often repeat. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That was God's response to, to Solomon building the temple. Now, God also, if you go down farther in that chapter, and maybe when he put plaques like this in the wall, maybe we should put the opposite. What, what else God said here on our wall as well? As a reminder that God also declares that if you forsake me, if Solomon forsakes God, God will forsake him as well. So we can see here in these chapters, Solomon has the world by the tail. Everything is going well in Israel. He has support of the leaders and of all the people. He has the support of God himself. He has just built this fantastic, fabulous temple to God. The Ark of the Covenant is there. And now finally... Finally, God can dwell with his people just the way that it's supposed to be, right? God can dwell with his people. He'll be with them. They will be his people, and he will be their God. God has accepted the sacrifice in the prayer of Solomon. The land is at peace. There's economic prosperity. Gold and silver are as plentiful as stones, and people come from far and wide to hear Solomon's wisdom, but also to hear about Solomon's great God. Everything is going well. But there's something under the surface here that's terribly wrong. And I want you to turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Turn back a couple of books. And we see here in the beginning part of 1 Kings chapter 3, that Solomon made affinity or alliance with Pharaoh and married Pharaoh's daughter. Now, this was against the law for anyone in Israel to do that, to marry someone from outside of the Israelites, and particularly for kings. You see, kings had special laws. They had, they had specific laws for them. One was don't accumulate a lot of horses. One was don't take many wives. One was don't have a lot of wealth. Don't accumulate mass amounts of wealth. 
And we can see later on in 2 Chronicles, and I'm kind of flipping back and forth here because Kings and Chronicles have a lot of the same stories. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, I believe it is, that Solomon amasses massive amounts of wealth, chariots, and horses directly against the laws for kings. But remember, Solomon had a kingdom to run. He had an organization that was dependent on him for its safety, its security, its economic prosperity. He had people that were depending on him. And so Solomon had to do what he had to do, right? He had to do what he had to do. In 1 Kings chapter 3, as we looked at before, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh and married his daughter. Now, why did Solomon do this? It tells us, but I want us to think through that a bit. Because I think we have a little bit different perspective on this than what Solomon would have. Was this a situation that was similar to David and Bathsheba where Solomon saw this woman from Egypt and wanted to marry her? I don't think so. Did Solomon have a, have a hard time finding women in Israel that pleased him? No, I doubt it. But Solomon made a strategic alliance with Egypt. And if you think about it, according to our fleshly wisdom, this was a smart thing to do. Because that southwest border was difficult to guard. Okay, all the other nations around Israel were kind of small. You know, we can, we can, kind of, we can take care of them. Assyria, that isn't yet. Babylon, that isn't yet. Or at least not in strong power. So we don't need to worry about them. But Egypt is a little bit scary. We've got to protect ourselves from Egypt. What's the easiest, fastest way to protect ourselves from Egypt? We can build all kinds of forts. We can get horses and chariots. What's the easiest, fastest way? Marry Pharaoh's daughter. Problem solved. Problem solved. But you see, Solomon not only had to marry Pharaoh's daughter, which was a big problem in and of itself, but he also had to build her a house. Not just any house, but a big house. And not just anywhere, but in Jerusalem. And so we say, what? Solomon, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You know better than this. But Solomon was making a strategic move for his country, for his organization, so that they could be around for the long term. So where did this lead? We could turn to 1 Kings chapter 11. Go ahead and do that. 1 Kings chapter 11. Just scan down through the first eight verses there in 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11, one through, 1 through 8. Just scan down through there. Solomon loved many foreign women, and he held fast to them in love. When he was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and he built, get this, he built a high place for Chemosh and for Molech. Now, who were these gods? Who were these gods? What did they represent? He went after Ashtoreth. These were the very gods that the Israelites came to annihilate, what these gods' gods represented. And it was things like child sacrifice, immorality, you name it. You look at the worst of the worst in our culture, you name it, that's what these gods represented. And Solomon, the great king of Israel who built this great temple to God, is now allowing, or we could say even making Israel look more like the Canaanites that came before them than the people of God. 
than the children of God. And so what does God do eventually when the Israelites look more like the Canaanites than the people of God? Well, keep reading the Old Testament and, and you'll find out. Solomon was passionate. He was a passionate man. He had a lot of energy. He had a lot of zeal. He built this big temple. He built up Jerusalem. He amassed lots of wealth and horses. And I believe that Solomon was passionate about what God was passionate about, at least initially. I believe that he wanted the best for the Israelite nation. He wanted the Israelite nation to flourish, to always be God's people, where anyone that came through those trade routes could say, wow, this is what the whole world would look like if we would all be worshipers of God. This is incredible. Look at how they live together. Look at how they live with each other. But Solomon depended on earthly wisdom to build up his organization. And so the question that I want us to ponder on this morning is, was Solomon more passionate about his organization or his nation than he was about God? Because remember, greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. The second example I'd like to look at, we'll turn to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 26, and look at the example of Peter. And if you want to look in the Bible and read about a passionate man, read about Peter. You know, he, he just has energy. It's just oozing from him. Always excited, always talking, always ready for the next thing. And Peter makes some big statements here in Matthew chapter 26. We could look at verses 31 through 35. Jesus said, All ye shall be offended because of me this night. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow thou shalt deny me, me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, Yet why not deny thee? Likewise also said all the disciples. So Peter makes two really big commitments in this passage. One is a commitment to stand alongside Jesus. When they come and get you, when they come to take you away, I'm going to be here. Even if everyone else is offended and leaves, I'm going to be here. And then Peter also makes a commitment to the ultimate sacrifice. And that is, even if I need to die with you, I won't deny you. And yet I think that there were things that Jesus was saying recently that made Peter a little bit uneasy. Jesus was saying some things that didn't quite match up with him taking a kingdom, at least on this earth. Things weren't quite jiving here. Things like how he must suffer and be killed and be raised on the third day. Things like not taking a lot of time to talk about who would be next in line to him or who would sit beside him in his kingdom. Important things like that. Things like how everyone would, would deny him and things like how one of them would even betray him. And so I think Peter was a little bit uneasy. But nonetheless, Peter was going to be prepared. He was not going to be caught off guard. In Luke 22, you can go ahead and turn there. Luke 22 tells us the account of Jesus telling his disciples to trade their garment or cloak for a sword. And in my imagination, when Jesus said, trade your garment for a sword, Peter was saying, Jesus is talking my language. I like this. 
Now we're moving in the right direction. Now we're thinking properly. If Jesus wants us to trade a cloak for a sword, it must be important. And then we know the story. They told Jesus they had two, two swords, which Jesus said was enough. When Jesus was arrested, what was going through Peter's mind? I'm guessing that Peter had purposed in his heart, when this thing goes down, when this thing happens, I'm going to have a sword. I'm going to have something in my hand. I'm not going to roll over and play dead. I'm going to have a weapon in my hand. One of these two swords, I'm going to have it. He would prove to Jesus and the disciples and the whole world for that matter that he would not deny Christ, that he would die for Christ if needed. But everyone knows that you don't die without a sword in your hand. He would prove that he cared about and was worthy of Christ's kingdom. And he would prove that he would do what it takes to get the job done. And in Matthew 26, we see what happened. Jesus was betrayed and Peter struck. And it was a valiant effort. He made a really good effort, probably aiming for the head. But it's unlikely that Peter really knew what he was doing with that sword. But that's okay. Because when you're in God's kingdom, God can take your feeble efforts and, and use them for his honor and glory, right? I'm going to do the best that I can. I'm with Jesus. But then Jesus makes some even more astonishing statements. He says, put the sword away. Those who use the sword will perish with it. And he says, don't you understand that at any time I can call 12 legions of angels and they'll be here. I don't need, in other words, and I'm inserting more into this than what the scripture says, but I believe Peter's thinking, okay, Jesus doesn't need my feeble little sword. He can do it without that. And then Jesus finally says, how would the scriptures be fulfilled if we use force to protect me? And so Peter did the only thing that is left to do when your sword is taken away from you, men. When your sword is taken away from you, the only thing that's left to do is to run. Yeah, he followed afar off, but he also denied Jesus three times. The thing that he said he would never do, even in the face of death. I believe that Peter imagined himself sticking up for Jesus in a sword fight, but I don't think he ever imagined that standing with Christ would put him in danger of crucifixion. Peter loved Jesus, and I think he loved the kingdom of God, at least what he thought it represented, what he thought it stood for. Peter was a passionate man. He was not afraid to stand up for what he believed. He was not afraid to put his life on the line for what he believed was right and good. He was excited about Jesus' kingdom. But my question for us to think about with Peter this morning, was Peter more passionate about his method than he was about God? Was he more passionate about his method than he was about God? Because remember, greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. The third example I'd like to look at is Saul in Acts chapter 8. You can go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 8 and elsewhere in Acts and in the, and in the New Testament in some of the books that Saul, that later became Paul, wrote. We can learn some about what kind of a man Saul was. He was a young man. He approved of the killing of Stephen. He was a Pharisee. He knew the law inside and out. Now, when we think of Pharisees today, we think of hypocrites, generally speaking. 
Okay, but the Pharisees of that time were the righteous people. They were the ones that knew the law. They were the ones that followed the law. And actually, Saul says about himself, he says, I was blameless or faultless. Now, how many of you would write a letter to somebody else and say, I'm blameless or I was blameless. I was living a blameless life. Could we do that? Could you write that? Would you say that? Saul was a Pharisee. He knew the law. He followed the law. He was serious about the law. And he was disciplined. He's the kind of man that if we would see him today in our churches, we'd probably admire him because of his discipline, because of how serious he is about the law. Now, I also understand that the Pharisees had a lot of other things. They were taking advantage of people. And I want to lose sight of that. But I want us to also understand uh, Saul's history here as a Pharisee. He was passionate, a passionate man, passionate about persecuting the church, making havoc of it, going from house to house, dragging people out and taking them to prison. So he went, he came from Tarsus, which is about 400 miles from Jerusalem, and he went to Damascus, which is about 100 miles away from Jerusalem. And we don't see anywhere here that when he went to the high priest, he asked for a sum of money to go and find these Christians and persecute them. It appears like he went on his own. He just wanted the authority. He wanted the letters. He wa it doesn't appear like he was looking for money. He was passionate about persecuting the church, and he was going to go and get it. Saul was passionate about the law. Now, my question for us to consider was Saul more passionate about the law than he was about God? Was Saul more passionate about the law than he was about God? Because remember, greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. So we've looked at three examples in Scripture. Was Solomon more passionate about his organization than he was about God? Was Peter more passionate about his method than he was about God? Was Saul more passionate about the law than he was about God? But I want us to read about one more man today, and he's found in Hebrews chapter 11. And Matthew read this, but go ahead and turn there. I really enjoy Hebrews chapter 11 because you know, as you read through it, there's men in here that had a lot of faith, but they weren't perfect. I mean, if you just read Hebrews chapter 11, you might get that idea. But if you read through the Old Testament about these men, some of them I would say, what's Samson doing in here? Do all these men really belong in here? Jephthah? Do they really belong in this list of, of men of faith? But these men all had faith. And I don't know what you think about that as you read Hebrews chapter 11. Does your name belong in there? Do you have faith? It doesn't say that this is a list of perfect people. And even as we look at Moses, Moses was a murderer. Moses didn't even get into the, the promised land because of disobedience. Moses was a very meek man. He was a very godly man. He was a friend of God. That's very clear. God spoke to Moses, it says, as a man talks to his friend. Isn't that something? Can you imagine speaking to God? 
as a man talks to his friend. So looking at verses 23 through 29 in particular. In Hebrews chapter 11. It says some really kind of interesting things here about Moses. And I want to look at uh, verses 24 through 26 in particular. By faith Moses... When he came to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, what did the son of the Pharaohs do? They're the next Pharaoh. And I don't know if Moses was in line for that. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rather, I get this, rather he chose affliction with the people of God. Now, would he, cho- would he have chosen that if he would have known what was coming? I think so. I think, I think and that's, that's a question we don't need to answer. I don't know if he fully understood what that affliction would look like, but he chose, the Bible says, to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, all that Egypt had to offer as the world power of that time. Because he esteemed or he held higher, he held higher the reproach of Christ than he did the treasures in Egypt. He held the reproach of Christ higher than he held the treasures in Egypt. That's quite a commitment. Why did he do that? Because he was looking ahead, it says. It was looking ahead. He had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He was looking forward to the reward. And we could read the same thing about Jesus. We could read the same thing about Abraham, Daniel, other men in the, throughout, throughout Scripture that Why did they do what they do? Why did they make those decisions? Because they were looking ahead. So there's something different here about Moses than about Solomon or Peter, at least the part that we read, or Saul, the part that we read. There's something about perspective here with Moses that's very powerful. Was he passionate about an organization? Moses? Sure. The Israelites, quite a large group of people. Was he passionate about a method in particular? Yes. Was he passionate about the law? Moses represents the law. But the difference that I see in men like Moses, Abraham, and David is that the Bible says things like they are, he was a friend of God, or he held up the reproach, the challenging things of God, the difficult things, higher than the pleasures that we can experience in his life, in this life. It seems to me that these men were friends of God first and then used their passions to support that friendship. And I also want to be clear that organizations, methods, and laws are important to moving the kingdom of God forward. God has used these three things throughout history in a powerful way to advance the agenda of his kingdom. And as conservative Mennonites, we know a lot about organizations, methods, and laws, and we take them very seriously, and we're very good at them, we could say. But I want to encourage us not to allow these things to take the place of our passion for Christ. It can be tempting for us as humans to place the main focus on the organization, on the method, or on the law, and in some cases, emphasizing that over relationship with God and relationship with Christ. So I want us to shift our focus just a bit 
And look at the word why. Look at the word why. Asking why is something that children do a lot. Asking why is something that big people do a lot. And if you don't, you should. It's a good thing to ask. You learn a lot of things by asking why. Why do we ask why? Why do we ask why? Because we want to know that what we're doing has a purpose. Okay? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to do that? I don't want to just do this unless I know it has a purpose. And so as people, we're driven by purpose and by passion. And sometimes that butts heads a little bit with tradition. And that's okay. Tradition and, and uh, why can have some conversations and learn some things from each other. I see a lot of value in that. But I want to look at the word why. In the business world today, understanding the why has become, you know, the latest and greatest thing. You know, businesses um, know what they do. Good businesses know how they do it. And the best businesses know why they do it. Because again, when, you can, when people know why they do something, they're a lot more motivated and a lot more passionate about that thing. The kingdom of God also has a why. Also has a why. Also has a reason and a goal and a purpose. We all know this, but I often forget that. I often forget the why of the kingdom of God from time to time because the why is not building my organization, nor is it polishing my method, nor is it pushing my law. Rather, to the extent that an organization's why or passion and vision is connected to God's why, that's the extent at which that organization, that method, or that law has value. To the extent that an organization's why or their vision or their passion is connected and overlaps with God's why is the extent at which that organization or method or law has any value. <laughs> because we all know that Lanchester Gas and Gap Power, LifeX Marketing, Paradise Energy Solutions won't last forever. And someday there'll be no bricks to lay and there'll be no need for car washes. And I don't know what the rest of you do, but I would have brought that in here as well. Someday the equipment and the buildings and the wealth that these organizations represent will be a heap of ashes. And we know that Peckway Church and School won't last forever. Someday the equipment and buildings and wealth that this organization represents will be a heap of ashes. Remember, in the final analysis, greater, is the sting of failure, greater than the sting of failure would be the sting of being passionate about or successful at something that doesn't matter. What if, like the rich fool in Luke 12, 18, we're tearing down our buildings and our barns and building bigger, better, stronger organizations but we've forgotten God, and our organization does not have any eternal value. What if, like Martha in the end of Luke 10, we are so focused on our method and on getting things done, but we forget God, and we fail to focus on the most important things, which I find it fascinating that Jesus, what Jesus said about Mary, 
She is focused on the most important thing, and that thing won't be taken away from her. What if, like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, we are so focused on law, but we forget God, and we end up straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel? But I want to paint a different picture for us this morning. What if instead Solomon would have used God's ways to secure the southwest border of, of the kingdom of Israel rather than marrying a foreign woman? What if Peter would have used God's method in defending and fighting for the kingdom of God? And we see later what it looked like when he actually did. And what if Saul would have recognized Jesus' superiority over law. And, again, later we see what happened when he did. As conservative Mennonites, we have strong organizations, strong methods, and strong laws. You also have a strong opportunity to use what God has given you to impact your world in a powerful way. You see, we find ourselves at a unique time in human history, and I suppose you could say that for about any time, but it seems like it's getting more and more unique the longer we go. A time of unprecedented access to information, communication, wealth, and resources. At the same time, the needs in the world are also great. COVID, war, supply chain issues, and inflation threaten to upend the world as we know it today. So where does Peckway Church and school fit into all this? I'm going to take a little bit of an unscripted tangent here. But I believe that our schools have an enormous opportunity today, bigger than ever before because of COVID. COVID has given us as a people with our communities and our schools an enormous opportunity. I want to encourage you in that. You know, you're, you're adding on to your school. Go for it. Don't focus on the building, though, remember? That's going to be an ash heap someday. But you have an opportunity to impact people that would not have considered entering our doors or entering our schools are now thinking about it. And COVID has brought this, this thing about. Do you think God has a hand in all this? I think so. I think he does. So where does your church and school fit into all this? My prayer and my goal and my vision, hopefully it's yours as well, and I believe it's God's is that Peckway Church and School and the businesses and the organizations that are represented here could, in your little corner of the world, and in your short period of time, and in your small way, could be part of the kingdom of God, could be influential, and that you could have an outsized positive influence on the world of today and, by extension, the world of tomorrow. Because remember, while your organizations and your methods and your laws will not last forever, the impact that those things have can last forever. God bless you. Let's kneel for prayer.